You know, one of the great comedians, one of the most famous comedians of the 60s was a guy named Flip Wilson. Some of you may recognize Flip Wilson. And he had this kind of famous character. I mean, and even if you weren't uh, raised in that era, maybe just kind of through something you've seen, maybe it's one of these sort of late night offerings where they give you like the Time Life CDs or whatever, you know, of the, of the different comedians. Maybe you've seen uh, Flip Wilson and you've seen his famous character, Geraldine. In fact, it just was an audio character for a while on some of the comedy records that they used to have. But then he had a Flip Wilson show in which he started acting out this character. And so Geraldine, he would actually dress in a wig and a dress and act out this character. But one of the most famous sort of lines or scenes from the Geraldine character was what's kind of commonly come to be known as the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it, right? And so there was this great little scene he did. In fact, it was on that Sullivan show. Uh, one of those great talk shows of the past where he's, he's acting out as if he's Geraldine, and Geraldine was the wife of a preacher. And so Geraldine went and bought a new dress, and the preacher, her preacher husband said, why in the world did you buy that dress? What are you doing? You can, we don't afford that dress. We don't need that dress. And she would say, the devil made me do it. The devil made me drive up to the store. In fact, it kind of went through this kind of back and forth of, well, and the devil ran me off the road. The devil took my foot off the brake, all of this sort of thing. And he said, the devil made me do it. It was hide behind. The devil made me do it the whole time. And so her, her preacher husband, kind of tongue-in-cheek, said to her, well, gosh, when's the devil going to do me a favor? And Geraldine says to him, he already did. You're the reason he has a job. He's the reason you have a job. So... One of these jokes, one of these cheesy little jokes here, but what it does kind of illustrate uh, for us is the fact that when we were talking about spiritual warfare, the unseen reality, oftentimes we'll kind of flip one way or the other. We'll flip to the fact and we'll think uh, that, that you know everything that we can attribute that's not walking in God's direction of his word, walking in sin, we try to attribute to either the devil, the demons, spiritual warfare that's happening around us, or we swing so far the other way to think that that's the sort of thing of fantasy past and legend. And that's one of those things, as we talk about in the very first week of this sermon series, the Word of God, if we think that the Word of God isn't the Word of God, the infallible Word of God, but the Bible simply contains the words of God, then oftentimes spiritual warfare, uh, that unseen reality, is one of those things that we can try to jettison from the Bible and say, well, maybe that's just sort of fantasy and legend of the past. And what that kind of silly illustration to open the sermon illustrates for us is the fact that oftentimes we can swing one way or the other. So those of you who are joining us for the first time today in the midst of this sermon series, this is called Foundations, Great Themes of the Bible. Uh, great doctrines of Scripture. And so what we're doing each week is we're taking a look at some of these great themes, these great pillars of doctrine, um, each one of the weeks of this sermon series. And because of the, there's so much depth in these, uh, and, and there's, as, as, is, as is with the Bible, that it's shallow enough that a child can wade in, but deep enough that a great thinker can drown in. Many have said that before. There's so much more that we could ever do than what we can do in the midst of a sermon like this. So what we're doing is each week when we upload the sermon audio to our website, we're also with it giving some supplemental material, some really neat stuff uh, that we're adding to that each and every week to help you do a deeper dive. That's what you'll see in the midst of the sermon series under the sermon page, a deeper dive sheet if you want to dig deeper into what we're talking about today. But week three of this is spiritual warfare, the unseen reality. And we're going to one of the most uh, familiar passages in all of Scripture dealing with this, and this is when Jesus himself was tempted. 
So what we're going to look at through the course of this is not only temptation, not only would we say in in kind of a roundabout way, the the negative side, if you will, of spiritual warfare or the unseen world of spiritual reality, but also we're going to look at where do angels fit in this as well. So let's start here in verse 1 of chapter 4 of the book of Matthew, and it says this, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. He wasn't led up by the devil, but he was led up by the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Again, Isaiah tells us, we quote this quite often, Isaiah 55 says, your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts, speaking to God, are higher than our thoughts. In the grand scheme of God's great redemptive plan, we don't know exactly why it was that, 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 that God allowed him to be tempted by Satan. Other than the fact that we draw, not only would we, God receive greater glory from this, would it be a greater affirmation of the glory of Jesus Christ, but we also, uh, this day and age, draw strength from this as well. That Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, think about what state of weakness you may be in. Afterward, he was hungry. I'd imagine so. Now, when the tempter came to him, Jesus said, or the tempter came in and he said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, he he knew full well who he was, but if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And we see the pattern, not only this first temptation, but the two following temptations. Here we see this pattern throughout this passage, right here in this wonderful, succinct, yet powerful response by Jesus Christ. And he answered and said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, in the heart of this uh, message that we're looking at today and this truth of Scripture, spiritual warfare, the unseen reality, we again have to make sure that we're, we caution ourselves to swing one way or the other, to swing so far one way that we attribute all in, in life and all in the world and all of our failings to some sort of unseen force, or we swing so far the other way and fail to realize the truth of Scripture that, yes, there's a great unseen reality all around us. You see, the spiritual world is that unseen reality that has significant interaction with your life and the proliferation of the gospel, and the proliferation of the gospel. So when we kind of dig into this passage today, here's what's really interesting. The the points that we're going to draw from it, the title of these points, of these sections within this passage, we're actually going to kind of draw the words, the title of these points, not from this passage, words within this passage, but from 1 John 2, verse 16. You may be familiar with this verse as well. It says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. It's almost sort of categories, if you will, of the temptation that we face as people that are living in the midst of the world system. And again, that unseen reality of spiritual warfare, of the demons and the head of the demons, Satan, pushing those buttons in our life. And it's really interesting how these temptations line up with some of the very temptations that we see echoed in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. The very first one, you could almost categorize it as this, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, which we just read. One of the first things it says is that Jesus was led up to be tempted by the devil. We'll learn more about him in just a few moments, to be tempted by the devil. Now, here's a great point of encouragement for me. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have a high priest that is aloof and and distant from us, and we spend our whole lives trying to please this great high priest that sits on some sort of obscure mountain of heaven or sits upon a cloud and he is unreachable. We don't have an aloof God, an aloof Savior, an aloof high priest, which Jesus is between us and God, but it says we have one that can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was in all ways, in all points, tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows exactly the difficulty of living in, the, in, a, in a sin-fraught world and trying to live as a believer in Jesus Christ and resist temptation. And as we'll see throughout this passage, yes, we live in the midst of a world that is fraught with temptation. We live in the midst of a world that also has an unseen world of spiritual warfare, but we have the power at our fingertips, see Romans chapter 6 and 7, to live in Christ-likeness. So Jesus was led up to be tempted by the devil. It also reminds me of the sovereignty of God in the midst of all of this. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus Christ, stepped from heaven into flesh, incarnate. Also, again, was tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin. Even in the evil intentions of the evil one, and even living in the midst of an evil world, God and his sovereignty can bring good from the trials and temptations that you face. Verse 2, in fact, tells us again that as he was led up there, it kind of gives the circumstances of this, that he fasted 40 days, 40 nights, and he was hungry. Of course he was. And he was weak and vulnerable. Weak and vulnerable. You've been there before, whether it be a physical weakness or whether it be sort of an emotional vulnerability. You've been in that place where it weakens you against temptation. But what did Jesus Christ do? He focused again on the sovereignty of the Father. He focused upon the Father himself, and he focused upon his calling. You see, oftentimes as believers, we rob ourselves of one of the greatest thrills. I can't think of a better word for it. There's probably a more appropriate, not only grammatically, but theologically a more appropriate word. But we rob ourselves of the thrill oftentimes of the Christian life because we are not living out our mission as believers to take the good news of the gospel. We're not living out our calling as those sort of um, uh, earthen vessels with the good news of the gospel as that treasure. We're robbing ourselves of that, but he was focused on the Father, his glory, and the calling of which he had. But it says he fasted again 40 days, 40 nights, and the tempter came to him, devil, the sa- Satan, the, the adversary, came to him and said, if you are the son of God, knowing exactly who he was, if you are the son of God, take these stones and make them bread. What a temptation it must have been without the words of Satan. Yes, Jesus Christ was God the son stepped into flesh, but he was that. He was fully God and fully man. He felt the hunger just as we would feel the hunger in the wilderness. What a temptation it must have been. You see, the, the, the devil, the adversary, was tempting him to be not who he was in his first advent. He was the lion, but he came as the lamb. When he returns again, he will come as that roaring lion, but he came as the sacrificial lamb. But Satan tempted him and said, we all know who you are. Turn those stones into bread. What are you doing wandering here? Temptation had came, preying upon his weakness. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. But what did he do? Again, the pattern for the, for the other two temptations as well. He says, it is 
written. It is written. You know, unfortunately, sometimes familiarity with a passage. Most of us that have studied the Word of God, uh, if you're new to the Bible and new to Scripture, all of this may be new to you. But for some of us who have heard this before, familiarity can kind of cause us to gloss over these passages. But let us not gloss over the fact that what did he say? He said, it is written. The supremacy of the Word. Psalms 119.11, your word I've hidden in my heart. I memorize, I've hidden it, I meditate, I, I, I make the word of God, I make the Bible an important part of my life, I hide it so it's there at the moment of temptation, it's ready, it's ready, it's there. I, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Recalls the original uh, portion of scripture in which we see this. The origination of this is in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, when again the, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. They didn't have food, and what did they do? Of course, they started grumbling, right? And we so often throw stones at them and say, how could they do that? But we would probably do the same thing, unfortunately, in their place as well. Human nature. But they were grumbling because they didn't have food. So verse uh, 3 of chapter 8 of Deuteronomy says this, so he humbled you, again, Speaking the words of God, he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna. A reminder about that, that instance there, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, or your fathers did not know. It's a reminder of how God had taken care of them in the midst of the wilderness wandering. The manna came from heaven, a bread-like substance that would appear each day and disappear, lest they think, okay, we've got to gather plenty up and store it kind of in our, in our deer meat freezer or whatever it might be. Lest we do that, God said, no. You don't. It's going to spoil after a day. I will give you more because it was a reminder to them that God was taking care of them every step of the way. But he uses this passage here to say, man shall not live on bread alone. But the greatest sustenance, the greatest spiritual sustenance was this, that he lives by the every word. He lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's spiritual sustenance. Folks, let's just bring it down and, and kind of into our day and reality and just kind of bring it down to the bedrock level of your life. Are you spending time in God's word? Are you spending time daily in God's word? And you might say to me, Pastor, I don't have time for that. I understand. I sympathize with the fact that we live busy lives. Unfortunately, sometimes we kind of have self-created busyness. So I tell you the very first thing that you need to do is examine your life, examine your schedule. Are there things in our life that we're adding that's making life busier than it should be? The second thing I say, are, are we really being honest with ourselves? Are we not finding time either? Again, I always encourage, if possible, for someone to, to, to get up earlier than they have to. Get up early, whatever time you get up, you take your shower, you get ready for work, get up a little bit earlier. And God's face, the first face that you see. Many great thinkers and theologians have said that in the past. I think it's a wonderful directive. Make God's face the first face that you see. But even if you can't, do it in the evening. You say, I don't have time. I can't carve out the time. Are we really telling me that there is not some time that we're spending, maybe it's screen time, watching TV, tablets, smartphone, social media, whatever it may be, even something that on the surface might be a, a little bit more beneficial, maybe reading a book, that sort of thing. Are you telling me there's not some time that you can say, I'm going to take this and make this God's time? Say, well, Pastor, that's how I use, that's the time that I use to unwind. I have a stressful, difficult day. That's the time that I use 
to unwind. So either I can't use it for God's word or I can't use it to go to bed earlier so I can get up and read God's word because that's the time that I use to unwind. Folks, I understand that. I understand there's a necessity to unwind, but what are you seeking in that time of of wanting to unwind? You're seeking a time of stress relief. You're seeking a time of peace in your heart in the midst of the difficulty of the world around us. So what if I told you that the far more effective way to, to sort of quench that thirst for that satisfaction and to stem the tide of, of, of that stress and difficulty in your life? What if I told you the far more effective way of d- d- doing that, the numbing it, pushing it below the surface with mindless whatever, is to spend that time in God's word? Because I'm telling you, that's the absolute truth. That's not just a fantasy. That's not just something that's kind of floating out there in the heavenly realm. Yes, it might take a little more time. Yes, it might take the time to set the pattern in your life. But let me tell you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ here today, if you carve out that time to spend time in God's word, when you look over the course of not just a week, but maybe over the course of a month, a course of a year, you will see how God is sustaining you and God is causing you and helping you to grow. So here's the thing. There is an unseen war. Folks, there is an unseen war for where you will satisfy the appetites of your soul. The question is to you, will it be the word of God? Will it be the word of God? Or will we just use the things of the world to kind of keep pushing it further and further down? So we see, of course, using 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, this first temptation is almost a reflection of the temptation that we see there of the lust of the flesh. The second, even though it's out of order from 1 John 2.16, you can almost say as a reflection, the second temptation of Jesus is a reflection of the pride of life. Verses 5 through 6 say this, Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. This is a quote from Psalm 91. The neat thing about this is not only is it obviously see prophetic speaking of Jesus, but when you look at the context of Psalms 91, these are promises given unto the followers of God as well. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. He took him up there on the pinnacle of the temple. Look at this picture here. It's a picture of the pinnacle of the temple here. This is a little kind of off, but it was the best one that I could find online that I thought really illustrated the height of this. This is the southeast corner of the Temple Mount, what's kind of historically been known as this site, probably of which the devil took Jesus, where there was a great drop of 450 feet, set him up in there in the original before all the land was kind of built up around it. But he took him up there and said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself off. What's the big deal? The angels will come and take charge of you. He's tempting him. Tempting him, and he says, in fact, he shall, again, give his angels charge over you. Now, here's the portion where we're going to pause a little bit. What's unique about this sermon series, if you haven't joined us up until this point, the last three weeks of this sermon series, we're going to walk through what are some things that we know from Scripture about not only angels, as are mentioned here, but as we'll get back to in just a few moments, Satan, and of course, as Satan is the head of the demons. We're going to take a little bit of this, a little bit of time, and kind of take a little survey of these things. And of course, what I encourage you to do, if you want to learn more, we're going to have supplemental material uploaded online with the audio of the sermon. But here's the thing. Quote from Wayne Grudem. We're going to put it up here on the, on, on the screen. Angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment 
high intelligence, but without physical bodies, by Wayne Grudem. We're going to quote him quite often. Uh, this, he, by no means, is the only authority on, on great themes, great theology, great doctrine of the Bible, but he's a really good one and does a really good job compiling some of this stuff. So oftentimes you'll see, as you've seen in the last couple of weeks, that we will uh, quote from him quite often. So what, let's break this down a little bit. Spiritual. They are spiritual beings without a body, but given a body when necessary at times. Hebrews 13, 2, which we'll come back to a couple of other times in this little survey of angels as well, say, do not forget to entertain strangers, for so by doing, some of you have unwittingly entertained angels. And then we also see throughout scriptures that given the time, given the purpose of whatever they're called to do as messengers and as emissaries of God, sometimes they'll have bodies, but they're spiritual beings. They're moral as well. They're not robots, just as we weren't created to be robotic, nor are they. Uh, they chose to sin, in fact, in t- uh, 2 Peter 2, 2 Peter 2, verse 4, it says this, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into change of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient people of the world, but saved Noah, and he continues on, and he says, By no means will God, it speaks of his justice, as we talked about last week, that God is a just God. So I ask, well, what about guardian angels? right? They're sort of popularized in our culture, TV shows, movies, whatever. There is no significant evidence in scripture to to tell us the fact that each one of us would have a guardian angel. Sometimes people might look at Matthew chapter 18, verse, verse 10, the last part of verse 10, to sort of support the point that maybe we have guardian angels. As Jesus was speaking to the children, he says this verse towards the end of, of, of 10, he says, their angels, their angels always see the face of my father who's in heaven. Some other scriptures people might use to say, well, yeah, I think we all have our individual guardian angel. Now, no doubt, angels, part of their role and their calling we see through scripture is to protect and to guard and to to guide. Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit guides us, but we've seen that throughout biblical reality. But it's more of, I love how one person said it's almost like relating it to parenting. It's not a man-to-man defense. It's a zone defense, if you will. They're there to help at times when called by God. What's their purpose? What's the ultimate purpose of angels? To carry out, at times, to carry out the plans and the message of God. One of the great examples of that is Luke chapter 1, to carry out the message of God of the coming Messiah. They're also a wonderful example to humanity, to believers, of worship and devotion to God. We see that in Revelation chapter 5, where they're gathered around the throne, and and they're, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. And also, they remind us of the reality of an unseen world, of an unseen world. Again, so that we don't flip so far the other way to say, well, I'm just going to kind of dissect the Bible here and dissect that giant portion scattered throughout the Bible of what we know to be spiritual warfare and an unseen reality around us. Lest we do that and we kind of, again, become the sole arbiter of what is truthful in the Bible, it's a reminder of the fact that, yes, all of Scripture is God breathed. All the scriptures God breathed. We don't pray or pray to, nor do we worship angels. Colossians 2.18, in fact, reminds us that that's one of the great heresies at the church of Colossae. Let no one cheat you of reward, it says, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels. We don't worship, nor do we pray to angels. And what about angels compared to us? The Bible tells us, the Bible never tells us, as we have the wonderful distinction As we have the wonderful distinction in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 3, it says that we were created 
in the image of God. It never says that for angels. But what it does, it reminds us again of his great love unto us, that we are special. We're special. So again, kind of taking that little aside there of the theology and this great theme of, of, of angels and scripture, we'll expand more upon that in the sermon uh, series and the supplemental material. But as we kind of take back, it says, it says, uh, it is written, Satan says, it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. As he does here throughout this entire passage, we see that he twisted scripture to fulfill his purpose. Because one of his greatest weapons is not scare tactics, but one of the greatest weapons of the enemy is his cunning. More to come on that in just a few moments. But Jesus said to him, it is written. It is written. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God as he was tempted in Massa, reminding them of that time where they were complaining again about not having water. And God provided them water through Moses. But again, Jesus said to them, in their hand, Jesus said to them, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. So the lust of the flesh, pride of life, and then out of order again from 1 John 2.16, but it almost reflects better the lust of the eyes here in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. And the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. Never mind how, how ironic and how almost silly it is that he was speaking to the prince, uh, the prince of glory. And, and the devil said to him, all of these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. What incredible irony it is. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And him only shall you serve. Demons, when it speaks to demons and of the devil, as we'll get to the devil proper, Satan. Again, take this, write this down. Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and now continually work evil in the world. Jude chapter, or Jude verse 6 says this, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain speaks of them, but left their own abode. He is reserved in everlasting chains under the darkness for the judgment of the great day. Satan, in fact, that name, the proper name of the devil, means adversary. He is the head of the demons looking to oppose the plans of God and our work in the world, the very work of God. Luke 10, verse 18 says to this, And I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Speaking of Satan, the adversary, head of the demons. What is their aim? If we're thinking the purpose of the angels are to carry out the promises, the plans of God in certain cases, certain instances... What is the aim of the demons? It's to oppose the very work of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says this. It's speaking of unbelievers in the world whose minds the God of this age, Satan, the adversary, has blinded, who do not believe, don't believe the great message of the gospel. Don't believe the great message of the gospel that, yes, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, but God's great love for us caused him to send his son Jesus to save us, to save us and cleanse us. But the minds of those who do not believe, the, 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 the God of this age has blinded their minds who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, be shown forth. They are not... He, Satan or the demons, they are not omnipotent. We talked about that word last week. I mean, they are not all-powerful. 
They are not omniscient, meaning they are not all-knowing, neither demons nor Satan, the head of the demons, and they are not omnipresent, meaning they are not present everywhere. Some of these great uh, characteristics and attributes of God. And again, as we started the midst of the sermon, not all sin can be attributed to them. See, here's the thing. Christians can be attacked by the enemy, but we cannot be possessed, of course, by the devil, by demons. Attacks on Christians, but not possessions. Romans 6.14 says this, For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you, that is for the believer in Jesus Christ, who's given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. You are under grace. You see, one of the greatest works of, of Satan, we said, the great work of Satan can almost be filed under the category of cunning rather than scare tactic. It can almost be filed under a deception rather than scare tactics. Again, if we're kind of illustrated by the movie categories, something like an, a movie about espionage would be more applicable to the work of the enemy rather than a horror movie. Work of espionage. That great, uh, that great book by C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters, where it is one, it is sort of the, 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 the head demon or the senior demon in seniority is writing to his nephew, training him up in the ways of how to tempt, an un, uh, tempt a believer, um, or tempt a person. It's a really neat uh, fiction book in which C.S. Lewis teaches biblical principles of how the enemy works in our life. He says the goal, he counsels, is not wickedness in the life of a person, but indifference. Not wickedness, but indifference. Satan cautions his nephew to keep the prospect, that is the person that his nephew is tempting, the nephew that demon is tempting, to keep him patient but comfortable at all costs. Keep him comfortable at all costs. If he should become concerned about anything of importance, encourage him to think about his lunch plans. Not to worry, it could, be, it could induce digestion. And then his definitive job description, he says this, here's your definitive job description, my young apprentice. I, the devil, will always see to it that there are bad people. Your job, my dear Wormwood, is to provide me with people who do not care. Provide me with people who do not care. And I love in that book, we've quoted it before, but I love in that book by the great theologian C.S. Lewis, how he uses that, that work of fiction to describe these, these uh, biblical principles. Because again, if we're going to describe and use by illustration uh, the work of the enemy in our lives, a movie about espionage would be far more applicable than a movie about horror. That's the sort of idea we get from Hollywood, the, 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 the sort of scare tactics of the, of the enemy in the unseen world of spiritual warfare, but it has more to do with deceiving us, trying to make us comfortable, trying to keep us from being weaned off of the world, but being attached to the world. But here's the wonderful news. God will triumph. 1 John 3, 8 says this, for this is the purpose. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And as we see that continue here, and we see Jesus almost model this in the midst of this passage, continuing in verse 9, it says again that he was taken up to an exceedingly high mountain, showed all the kingdoms of the world in all their glory, and Satan says to him, all of these things I will give to you, let alone the fact that Jesus spoke the world into creation. 1 John 5.19 tells us that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. 
John 16, 11, of the, of, it speaks of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So God in his infinite wisdom, his ways being higher than our ways, thoughts being higher than our thoughts, gives some sort of control and power, if you will, to Satan in our world. But ultimately, God will triumph. Again, 1 John 3, 8, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. But he was tempted. Again, Jesus was tempted by Satan by saying, if you fall down and you worship me, if you fall down and you worship me, and, 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 and Jesus tells him and reminds him, unlike those, unlike the Israelites of old, Jesus said to him, away with me, Satan, for again, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only him shall you obey. It says that he did that he had a zeal for the glory of God and the redemptive plan and a zeal for his call as to be the one, the lamb who would be the savior of the world. James 4, 7 says this, resist the devil, therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He didn't say just kind of go on your own and try to resist the devil, figure it out on your own, do your best. He says, submit therefore unto God, submit to him through his word, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then wonderfully, as it wraps up this passage, it says here, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. You see, Psalms 91 was fulfilled, but it was in God's timing and his way. Psalms 91 says this. Let me read it to you in long form here as we close. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall never come to you. Only with your eyes you shall look and see the reward of the wicked, because you have made known, you have made known the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor evil, nor, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion, the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Again, the spiritual world, it is an unseen reality that has significant interaction, not only with your life, but the proliferation of the gospel. So here's the thing. Will you resist as you submit to God? Will you resist, resist the devil? Will he flee from you? Will you echo the words of Jesus here that we see in our focal passage? That man shall not live on bread alone. Will you live? Will you live on bread alone or will you live on the very words of God? Let's pray. Lord God, as we come now, we think one of the great temptations we would say even here as we deal with scripture like this and great theme and great teachings 
of all of Scripture that the reality of spiritual warfare would be either tempted to say we're going to blame it on, on, on the spiritual warfare around us when we fall short of your word or to dismiss it altogether. But Lord, we know there's an unseen reality around us of the enemy that seeks to thwart your plan of redemption in the world and knowing that we are your emissaries, your ambassadors, seeks to make us ineffective for the gospel. But Lord, we pray, not in a way of trying to figure it out on our own, not trying to figure out how we in our own strength and power can become a better person, but Lord, by digging into your word, giving it supremacy and priority in our life, as we spend time with you, as we spend time with your son Jesus, that we would become more like him. And in his name we do pray.